0: idea for
1: all this really came from a dream yes it did good evening and welcome to nox mente tonight's guest is derek hunter derek is the creator and author of love chaos a way of life that embraces unpredictability while focusing on love a follow-up book love chaos in theory and practice is out now derek welcome to the show
0: thank you so much uh jerry and and nish i really Appreciate you guys having me on here. Um, you know, you guys have an awesome show, so it's it's I'm very very uh, 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 grateful to be on here. So thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, this is exciting. As we've been chatting over, I don't know how long now. We have we're obviously the same generation. We have a huge amount of overlap and stuff in common with pop culture and music. Really, not pop culture, the underground. But I think in the annals of time it still all ends up being pop culture. So this sure. is this is thrilling to know, you know, you're definitely a tribe.
0: Yeah, no, it it um that's it is interesting that you said that about pop culture or counterculture. I think it's uh maybe perhaps it rather than thinking about it in either pop culture or mainstream culture or counterculture or the underground, it's sort of uh of um high quality i think and uh culture and uh for sure yeah there's definitely you and i have been having some great conversations about a lot of different things from from different, various different things in in the cultural you know uh realms and then also personal as well so it's it's been a great just you know pleasure getting to know you so you know, i i definitely um always feel that um, life is really uh at its best when you find some other people that you can connect and relate to
2: oh totally and there's uh i mean really in the end there are so very few that actually especially as we go back we're into the same scenes that you and i were into in 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 the same cities too but you know current 93 throbbing gristle the like there's all this stuff that I mentioned some of these names and people have no idea who I'm talking about generally. (laughs) So, and you can, you know, you were one of the people that could tell from the stuff I do that I have that influence, even though I was working back in the eighties and nineties doing, doing this stuff live too. Although I just didn't, I didn't rise to any, any occasion, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, it's it's amazing right. to me. Like, you know, when you when you call when I mean, you you uh, name those bands and you know Coil among them too.
2: Yes. Oh God, and, I love Coil.
0: You know, and uh, you know, uh, uh, there's another uh, person who is not really popular, and I, I certainly don't agree with a lot of his sort of um, points of view on things. But he's definitely interesting and 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 provoking. Is Boyd Rice? Uh, yes. Yeah, you know, Of course. And, yeah, and uh, I just I love a lot of his music, and um, you know, and there's a lot of other people, and it's just like when you see the quality of uh, this music, along with various other, you know, forms of art, and then you, and, and, you know, you mention it to people, and and they have no no idea, and you just think, man, wow, it's just like there's so many people that are missing out on some really high quality stuff.
3: Yeah,
2: it's weird. It's it's so weird. The stuff is so underground and countercultural. And back in the 80s, there was, I, I don't even know. I mean, it was like, I don't know if you remember this. This is so not Knox tape, but there was this whole movement. And so I had these friends, mostly my LA friends, by the way, that had, that maintained like regular jobs in the day and then at night they were punks and this is 80s wave so this is early wave of of punk and it right into new wave and and industrial stuff so it's the early wave of it but it was so weird and I recall I was very east coast at the time even though I later moved to San Francisco but I recall so much I guess looking down the nose from more of the East Coast crowd towards the West Coast that would do that as posers. like poser Yeah, oh, there's a term <laughs> for that.
0: And we actually have a show out here in LA. It's called Part Time Punks.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, you it know, was such as, a thing in LA. Jesus.
0: Yeah. And the same goes for the goth scene in here in LA, too, which, you know, in a lot of ways, LA really, I don't want to say birthed like the goth scene, but it had a lot to do with it. You know, in in a lot of ways, the origins of the goth scene, and a lot of the goths were these part time goths. You know, just yeah. like the, just like the part time punks, as have a nine to five job during the day, and at night it's you know, yeah, it's, it's it's the transformation takes place, and that certainly still exists today um, here in L.A. and I, I would imagine in the rest of the of the world.
2: One of my good friends in the 80s she was from the valley somewhere i'm not sure where i she was one of those part-time punks and she had totally you know she had the punk hair going everything i think it's right 1983 or 84 and she had wigs that she wore for her day job and it was so hilarious it was Uh uh, betty and tiny and just you know beautiful but uh, she was pretty hardcore but the whole fact that she would get these wigs going and have this whole other thing to cover you know she had every kind of hair color at that time and you know it was all thrash hair and uh it was so funny you know the thing is for me when I think goth I think east coast so I hear what you're saying and certainly Mala Vampira brought the first wave, I think, in the 1950s. And there's lots of photo evidence of that with her. And, uh, but I think of Marvel Index with Nico. That, to me, that's the very first definitive goth album. Mm. It's the earliest. And then we move into, you know, all the stuff, all that stuff
3: yeah. that came yeah. later.
2: But certainly, certainly LA, uh, you can't separate the early original goth scene out of you can't separate la out of it
0: sure sure i think it definitely played a part and definitely in, in like the dance club scenes you know you have you know early goth bands i mean goth clubs like helter skelter and uh that you know went yeah started in the eight, late 80s and went through the 90s and um it's something that you know that spawned a whole slew of different goth clubs and um I'm sure you could find them in other parts of the world and especially, um, you know, in the East coast as well too. And, uh, you know, it's just France
2: death. France had a huge goth culture going on.
0: Oh sure. Right. In Germany and, and yeah, England yeah. too. And yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting when you look at the history of, 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 you know, not just the punk scene, but goth scene as well. And how it just sort of has, um you know, dispersed amongst the world and also penetrated the mainstream as well too and uh, for both good and bad, you know, and uh, it, uh, but, you know, going back to what you were saying about the whole part-time thing, I feel like there's a lot of people, including myself, who are uh, part-time occultists, you know. Yes. Having, you know, like, <laughs> uh, like uh, having to live the double life, basically, you know, and uh, it, while the occultists certainly probably embraced nowadays um more so than any any time before um it's still kind of an awkward thing or a weird thing for a lot of people and like where I work you know i i i have mentioned it a little bit to people like to coworkers and things like that and you know uh, and i and and uh but for the most part you know I really try to kind of like stay away from going too deeply into that because a lot of times people just don't really um understand it or they misinterpret it and uh it's just something that is interesting this whole notion of of living a double life whether it's a part-time punk or a part-time goth or a part-time occultist um you know you
2: know i find something a little bit more respectable about the the i didn't i think so I think you're not a part-time occultist. I just think you keep it uh, elegantly veiled. And and for me, a lot, and I'm all over the radio channels and in podcasts talking about this, but I, I think that maybe we need to come back to that with the occult, with with veiling it a little more instead of everyone just wearing it. Sure. Under, you know, it, visible tattoos and just the whole the whole thing that's just gotten so uh and i'm going to use the most surface level adjective here ugly it's just that yeah. it's become so ugly because it's so <laughs> common and fashionable
0: right well i mean it, it um i think it, it part of the appeal has been its its mystery you know and its uh sexiness and uh it, when it becomes you know like any kind of form of seduction. If it becomes too too obvious and too just in your face, it's no longer sensual. It's no longer mysterious. It just becomes just blatant and and uh uh I feel it like becomes a religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. Exactly. <laughs> a cult, a cult religion. A
4: cult religion, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, and, it, yeah.
2: Sorry. Sorry, Jay. Go on.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just saying I got one of those, you know. I religion. I, I got one of those to to share with everyone, you know, uh, love chaos.
2: Yes, and <laughs> that's true. And I, so I haven't dived. I was going to get your books. Haven't been able to dive into those yet, but I will say that I'm in love. I've listened to your other shows and I've looked and I listened to an interaction with, I think you and Keith. Uh, That was very interesting, and I'm completely intrigued by Love Chaos. So let's but let's move into and we were kind of there with our ideas of pop culture, with early you, and what inspired you as far back as you can recall. What are your earliest memories of this life and the stuff that sticks out?
0: Well, I have to say that you know, I w I was raised without a religion. Uh, the one thing that I did sort of have consistently sort of brought into my life was my stepfather's. Um, he was really into astrology. And so I had, I had a negative relationship with my stepfather. And, uh, so because of that, you know, I, I saw astrology in a negative light. I thought it was a bunch of bullshit. And, uh, I thought that, you know, it was just a way for people to not have not look at themselves and not look at their own issues because that's what my stepfather did and he didn't he didn't take a look at his own depression his own anger issues his own other kinds of issues and he was just a really troubled dude that just seemed to just run away from his own personal problems so in the beginning my association with you know i come i kind of lumped them all together because of that so i kind of lumped you know astrology with uh the occult, with new age, with uh spirituality, I just I lumped them all together as a bunch of hogwash. And uh, you know, I uh, would study in and in look into past cultures and was really into Native American beliefs and I did like Joseph Campbell and I liked the way he kind of would dive into different mythologies and um and, and, and he was a big influence on me for sure but for the most part, you know, I had a kind of a disdain for, uh, anything metaphysical whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, for me, I didn't really get into, uh, the occults until much, much later. And, uh, and it was, uh, after a number of different phases in my life where I tried different things and I, I did them wholeheartedly and sincerely. And, uh, you know, I've had this tendency to go from one thing to the next and kind of dive right in, you know. So, I, you know, going from a period in my life where I was uh, a pretty hardcore um, militant uh, Christian, but in kind of a new agey Gnostic kind of sense of the uh, kingdom of God is within me. And so, it's a very internal thing that you experience through meditation and prayer and so forth. And, um, was a very anti-materialistic uh, 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 kind of Christianity, and uh, that was at a time where I was going through a nervous breakdown um, and uh, needed something to hang on to uh, in my when I was about nineteen twenty, and then eventually after a couple of years I lost my faith. I fell in love with a woman who would later on to become my son's mother uh, many years later, actually, but I initially um, became close to her to try to help her out and quote-unquote save her soul but as a Christian and show her how to meditate and pray and so I you know got close to her that way and then through a number of experiences and falling in love with her I you know doubt crept in and I was losing my faith and uh, I kind of you know switched my obsession with, with God with my obsession with her and uh was madly in love with her and um that ended in heartbreak and um you know it 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 it, it didn't end completely badly because obviously we continue to get to know each other and, and I mean I mean get to know each other in a way where it wasn't romantically involved. Um at least the way I was experiencing it anyway. But I and then I went the other extreme and was really into just, um, living a life of excess. And that's when I started to experiment with drugs, became a, um, a heavy drinker, went out to, um, nightclubs with, with friends all the time. I tried to sleep with as many women as I possibly could, um, was rejected most of the time. Um, but I really went the other direction and living a life of the flesh and, uh, and I had a lot of great experiences for sure. And um, it was something that I needed to do at the time. And I, you know, went through either, even more phases. I was a, a peace activist for a year and uh, was a big follower of the filmmaker John Cassavetes. And, you know, I um, was just was just felt like uh, whatever I was going through was like the answer at the time. And it was something that I was fervently uh, attached to and believed in. And so it wasn't until all these different kinds of experiences, uh, I continued to be a heavy drinker and then got into doing hard drugs, crystal meth was my drug of choice and, um, just continued to push that lifestyle going. And, um, it was sort of through, I think because of my state of mind, I got into conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, got extremely paranoid about things, got into all kinds of conspiracy theories about the Illuminati, and uh, found myself in discovering Robert Anton Wilson's work, which in a lot of ways saved me um, because of his agnosticism and uh, dealing not only with conspiracy theories, but with life in general. And his form of agnosticism was really what helped me kind of actually find um, my center. And it wasn't faith. It was actually the opposite. It was doubt. And um, in, in, in being able to see the possibility of something either being one way or the other and uh, being okay with that. And, uh, and then it was through him and his sort of his sense of humor and the way he kind of would talk. And I would, you know, watch or listen to his interviews. And I started reading his books. And that opened me up to the possibility of exploring the occult. And he was sort of my doorway into um, getting into Aleister Crowley, especially. Uh, then I found myself getting into the work of Austin Osmond Spare uh, and then to others as well, you know. And um, so from there, I started becoming a, a practitioner. I started practicing magic and I would, know, you know, I got into uh, chaos magic and, you know, uh, really applied a lot of what uh, Peter Carroll and Phil Hine were into. and and. and used it in my own way and um, during this whole time I was still heavily into substances and doing a lot of drugs and doing a lot of alcohol Um, but by the end of a number of years of of living that kind of life I was at a a dead end and um, I needed to um, make a big change in my life and so I had a hard time you know Being born again, because I I already been born again. I already did the whole Christian thing, you know, and I had already tried a number of different belief systems. And I I thought maybe just try something, do the 12 steps or do something else and nothing really, nothing clicked. So I felt like, well, I felt like I needed something to kind of hang on to. I didn't want to hang on to something that was something I didn't really 100% believe in. So I thought, well, why not create my own religion? Why not create my own belief system, my own my own philosophy, that a way of life that I could that I could believe in, and could follow, that I could kind of use as something to help me get through this time and and, and continue living, not only for myself but for my son. And um, that's how Love Chaos was born in 2014, and it it was from the get-go. It was always when the, when i use the word religion it's a scary word and for sure it scares me too uh it's not something that i generally want to embrace but i i you know i called it a religion or a way of life or a philosophy because because it it has certain guiding principles uh but within those certain principles there was a lot of freedom it was a very non-dogmatic approach to living life and very open
4: to to everyone and really pushing this embrace of doubt um and so that's that's how i got into um creating love chaos very cool and um it's
2: you know thank you for that that uh that ride into where love chaos came from and here on Noxwente, we really focus more in on, on getting deep into your personal stuff. Sure. And then, and then we, we weave in all this other stuff, but that was a very well put together bio. <laughs> <laughs> That was very smooth. And I, you know, there. I had notes here too. I just love, I mean, you mentioned, I think, of course, Jenna Rollins comes up with the John, those films are amazing with John Cassavette and
4: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, it's so inspiring. And then I have a note here about the meth, with all, which I'll get into later when we start talking about States of Consciousness uh-huh uh because that's that's deeply uh rooted into this particular show that we do, and uh so I have a few notes out of all this but let's let's return to your youngest earliest memories
0: My youngest earliest memories
2: so and what we're looking for, I'm trying to build the foundation here so and remember the show really revolves around uh dreams and states of consciousness which all this ties into everything ties into that right but right. what i'm trying to, the house i'm trying to build here is to root to set a symbolic foundation for people that may not be getting this information about you elsewhere so that they can hone in and understand how you got to uh where you are now at a deeper level than just kind of the the bio level definitely and, sure and so like when you're very very young what do you remember that sticks out and this is you know very can be very surface level like cartoons uh movies things around you in the world were going on did you have a relationship with nature that kind of stuff
0: sure um i if I the first memories that come to mind to me now, there's a couple of things. Um I think I must have been around five or six, and I remember being at my grandmother's house in San Pedro, and having a, a birthday party. And I had uh, a couple of I had some some friends that I had um, who were there with me. I remember having a, a Star Wars. This is early '80s, so this is like a, I had a Star Wars record um from probably I think Return of the Jedi uh, I was really excited about and uh but I remember the friends in particular I remember Javon, uh he was an African American kid who uh was lived in Watts and he was one of my best friends and really sweethearted kid you know uh very kind very uh, gentle and then there was a couple of there were these uh twins that were um uh, brother and sister uh David and Marlene and uh they were good friends and whenever I was in my grandmother's place uh in San Pedro and I lived with my mother and my stepfather and myself lived with her for about 6 months but even before that we would come I would come and visit her and the those friends David and Marlene where I would always you know play with them and have have fun with them and they were there um and uh that was just a really good experience. I remember just enjoying, you know, being there. Uh, uh, my father was there. So my biological father who I, I didn't grow up with um, was there. My mother was there. My stepfather was there. And uh, I just remember that being one of my, one of my uh, more positive memories, you know, and um, other things came up too when you asked me that. Um, I, uh remember i got i got picked on quite a bit as a kid and so i got into a lot of fights uh in the beginning though um like there was this one kid who was also from the inner city and he would come a clique and he'd come up to me and punch me in my stomach and steal my uh, lunch money and so for a little while i wouldn't do anything in response he just would do that beat me up and take my money and um but one day i snapped and, uh, I went a little too far. Uh, not only did I punch him, but I, I picked up a, a desk and hit him with it. And, uh, I don't think I knocked him out, but I don't know. I just remember hitting him with the desk and uh, I was in like rage mode, you know? And, um, and I got in, of course, got into a lot of trouble for that and uh, teachers were screaming at me and stuff. And, uh, uh, that's a, that's a, a, a memory that I have in, in terms of my, earliest earliest memories
2: how old were you around when this happened
0: i think around that same time like i it must have been like kindergarten or first grade or something uh, i i'm not 100 percent sure maybe i was five six or seven okay. definitely yeah. not not definitely not any older than eight because we yeah. left we left la uh in this was at a school in venice and i we left la before, I was eight, eight years old when we, when we moved to Seattle. Um, so it was definitely before I was eight. I know that. And I know it was after
4: I was four. So it was probably five, six, or seven around that time.
2: I love this uh, this transition that happens for people when they're in the world and getting, I hate to use this word, it's so become politicized but bullied and when and and the good thing is this your story is good because there is this genesis that happened within you where you had you got you got pushed to the end and you actually addressed it based on with a dress with a desk <laughs>
3: Right.
2: <laughs> and, but that is so significant, Derek, on the psyche level. And it, it's major because some people never do. They just continue, they take on the victim.
4: Right. Right.
2: Role. And we'll ride that out some till they die. So this was, this says a lot about you and how much you were going to take. You, you took it and you took it until finally you confronted it. This is a big deal
0: well that is a is a actually a a running theme for me in my childhood um is because you know i had it that wasn't the first and certainly wasn't the last time that that happened um i got into a lot of fights as a kid growing up and i just i was smaller than other kids um but even outside of that you know i had a um a very traumatic experience when i was 9 uh with my stepfather um you know when he tried to rape me and um I was a little nine year old kid and I was playing with my cat. We were in Seattle and uh you know I um was playing with, with, with the cat and he was not sure what was going on with him, but I remember he was in his bathrobe and he he seemed like he'd been crying and he picked me up and he and he started saying, you, you know, you want to play or something like to that extent and then so he pushed me took me into the his bedroom with my mom and pushed me up against the bed and I had my my knees in front of me and I was kind of I I was against the bed and he was on top of me uh dry humping me and grunting and um it was a a despicable uh, ugly disgusting experience and uh you know I fortunately me being a scrappy kid you know, um, I kicked him off me, you know, as hard as I could. And we lived on a second floor and, uh, I, you know, he slammed against the window pane and, uh, he, he screamed at you, at me and said, you know, you fucking little shit. You almost killed me and stormed out of the room. Uh, and, and, you know, here was this guy who was a stay-at-home dad, right. He was, uh, uh, never worked the whole time. He was with my mom and, my mom was the breadwinner and she uh, was on a business trip somewhere. And, uh, you know, I, I, he was the person I saw the most. He was the person I trusted the most. Um, you know, I didn't have a, a great relationship up before that, but it was, he was still the person I saw the most. And, uh, I had no, I, I had no fucking clue what to make of that experience. I didn't know what that was. All I knew was I didn't like it. And, um, that was something that I, I bottled up. Um, I didn't tell I didn't tell my mother, I didn't tell my biological father who lived in LA at the time. Um, I didn't tell anyone until my first major girlfriend when I was 19, so 10 years later, and my and my best friend at the time too, I told them. Um and so I I just bottled it up. And uh, fortunately he never tried to do anything like that to me again. Um but uh you know it wasn't until I had my final blow up with him and my whole step family uh when I was about twenty six that I finally told my mother I finally told my biological father and um and just began com- being comfortable sharing it with people um you know friends and then even people I didn't know, even strangers and I realized how the therapeutic value of um disclosing secrets. And how important it was that it was when we have these secrets that cause so much pain that it was important to let it out, uh, not to hold it in anymore. And, uh, it, and even though I continue to have problems, obviously, with drug addiction and alcohol, um, it helped me tremendously. And a, as I did get better uh, in recent years, I I revisited that experience as well and came to better terms with it as well and um but that is certainly you know that whole experience was something that it um was- it, may, it left the mark and uh and for sure you know i i know I'll never completely hundred percent heal from it at the same time by just letting it out into the open I've healed from it um considerably and uh so that is something like that whole that connection to being a scrappy little kid and defending himself, it, it it was in not just in the realm of school, but it was at home as well.
2: The, it, again, that's another significant experience. And as as is coming in my life, this stuff was, as a kid, I mean, it seemed like yeah, you know, I'm a child of the '70s, and I know talking to my mother and her generation and my grandmother this stuff was actually really common and uh it was a matter of how people dealt with it and as we've come forward in in on the consciousness train about this stuff and coming out of uh, a further away from generations that just say oh that's you know this is like what cousins do or this is this is how stuff goes and that whole right, right. take it on the cheek kind of mentality that other generations did uh is has been interesting because you can see this forward momentum culturally now with these kinds of things and circumstances and i i like that I like where it took you, and obviously, I like where it took you. I like how you uh, synthesized this information, and and brought it to a higher level of consciousness. It it was like when it started happening to me. I was very very young, and I I always I was talking about it the next day, and of course, the generation, you know, my parents' generation were like, you don't talk about this. Like my stepdad literally said, if you say you say this again, you're getting your ass. And about, our, you know, a family friend that would come. And every time we would come, of course, who'd he get on in the night when he was drunk in the basement? Me. And, uh, but then I, of course, I uh, mistook that for affection and love. And I think little girls can do that in my observation and chats so with people about this seem to do that more often than little boys uh or you know the 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 female principle does for some reason packs it into a different uh sense of what love is and uh but you know it's interesting and these things ultimately though and magically as you know create if we allow them they create just this amazing amount of internal energy that synthesizes and transmutes into immense amounts of personal gnosis and this is and we see it looking at so many of the great masters that have have, have gifted us with wisdom via art and literature and poetry, and and philosophy, it's all born out of struggle, and especially these kind of hardcore struggles that we have to somehow house and and repress. So it, it's a there's a magical conversation in here, but you've put all this into your book, into your work. And it's clear you put it into your interactions because I sensed, I did not know this. So, but I sensed that you have been a traveler (laughs) and this is the kind of travel I talk about. Someone that understands this kind of hardcore stuff. When, when you were little back here in this nine, like five to nine period. So from, from basically California to Seattle, around this time, where you're generating this this scrappiness that is the kid that will eventually get to the point of throwing a desk at a bully and uh, standing up against the stepdad, trying to do this. Do you recall any any dreams and a dream life around? this period
4: i i don't i don't i
0: think you know for 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 me um i think a lot of the dreams that came about um were i think you know because at that between that time between the age of five and nine you know there was the transition going from living in venice beach which i loved you know growing up as a little kid there and roof hopping and getting the trouble and hanging out with a couple of two other people who I didn't mention, but uh, Desi was like my best friend, but there was also a girl who was a, a couple of years older than me, whose name was Venus. And, um, she, I, she was my first crush, my first love, if you want to call it that. And, um, I think that's sort of where my, you know, um, however innocent it was, my sexuality was sort of, um, sort of was born. and. Um, I feel that uh because of her you know um I had a, a certain sexual fantasies about her um and uh, certain things that probably came to me at the time um which I didn't have any understanding of of course but um and then along with that uh, uh, that sort of desire to be with her because we had when we left Venice and to go move in with my grandma in San Pedro we left her behind she loved spending so much time with me that um you know she she rarely spent any time at her own home she was usually with me and um she really wanted my mother and my stepfather to actually adopt her and uh, and take her with us uh but you know they chose not to and uh i have a very distinct memory of being in the back of the van that we had driving down in uh, and, and Venice Beach and looking out the window and and seeing Venus actually running after us and crying. And um,
4: that was the last time I saw her. And um, so we moved to San Pedro and San Pedro,
0: uh, oh, you know what? I had some, I had a lot of nightmares in San Pedro. I had, because I, I left Venice, I left a place that I, I really enjoyed my stepfather and my mother would get into arguments all the time, but I I just had a lot of fun, you know? And, um, so we, we left that and we left the school behind, even though I got into fights, I still liked the school and I, you know, and we left it and we went to a whole new place in San Pedro and I was alienated, continued to get into fights. Uh, but I just, I hated living there. And, uh, I slept in this room Going from sleeping on the ground on the floor in Venice speech to in this tiny little apartment, to living in this big house, and having my own room, which I'd never had before, and I would—I thought I would hear um, voices and ghosts in the house, uh, and uh, I just later discovered it was my grandmother had the radio on all night, and down the hall. But um,
2: that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> and uh but i really felt that the house was haunted and i was scared shitless from that house and i i just remember those were kind of if i could those were the beginnings of my nightmares and a lot of the nightmares that i had were of people that i knew um actually chasing me and 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 hunting me down to kill me and in some of my dreams all the people that i knew in my life whether they'd be family or they'd be friends or whoever would come after me and uh, in some of my dreams, I would actually see myself getting killed. And, um, you know, that, that, those kinds of dreams of being chased and, uh, and sometimes in really weird environments science fiction environments or fantasy environments or post-apocalyptic environments, oftentimes, and, and then eventually being hunted down and, and killed, either stabbed or shot or something, and then seeing my dead body.
4: On the ground, um those kinds of dreams would continue uh past the age of nine throughout my teens, really
2: This is fascinating so from from like nine to your teens or earlier
0: even earlier, I would say, because it was happening when i once we basically once we moved to San Pedro and we lived with my grandmother is when i i if I can remember correctly is when the the nightmares started happening.
3: And
2: how old were you when you were to San Pedro?
0: About seven ish.
2: Okay, so eight, seven seven on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And those those are significant. I, I, I love. I, I've got a big heart around this. Where your first girlfriend crushes. Her name's Venus. I mean, how perfect is that? Right. <laughs> it is. It's such a beautiful symbol. And then, and then this this kind of harshness of these images. You know. Her running down the street crying as you're leaving. And it's so picturesque and star-crossed. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there symbolically, just looking in, Derek. Uh, not to mention, you know, I can imagine, you know, I mean, you're living that. It sounds like you are, if I'm correct, aren't you an Aries?
0: Almost. You're very close. I'm a, another fire sign, I'm a Leo. Okay, you're. Yeah. yeah, my mother's in Aries, and uh, I'm a Leo. I was August 19th, the same day as Bill Clinton.
2: <laughs> do you know your rising and moon?
0: Yeah, uh, my rising is Aquarius, and um, I'm, I'm not certain whether my moon is either Scorpio or Libra. I had a a friend of mine do my astrological chart, use some computer program. And he said it was based on the Hindu, I think, astrology.
2: The, the Vedic, yeah,
0: the Eastern
1: yeah. astrology,
2: sidereal. It, uh, mm-hmm.
0: And he said so. He says that that is, according to him, was more accurate. And so, according to that, my moon sign is Libra. But if you go based on the the Greek, I guess, astrology, that my moon sign is Scorpio.
2: Okay, so it, it, in terms of this, so your sun is a leo in the tropical then right and not the sidereal oh i'm we- not
0: sure i i when it comes to astrology i i don't know a whole lot beyond my sun sign rising sign and uh uh in my moon sign
2: i'm gonna so if it was this same guy then i guess if he was using sidereal to and talking about that with your moon i'm gonna guess this was all sidereal okay that's i mean otherwise in the sidereal, you just go back base the basic rules. You just go back a sign with your sun sign and stuff. So it's just on an easy on the easy side. So is that okay. how it works? Yeah, it's just, so like so my in tropical... Aquarius
1: in in eastern in Hindu. V- yeah, it's Vedic so
2: Vedic astrology. V- well, it's sidereal is Vedic. It's uh like I'm a I'm a Taurus in the tropical zodiac but in the vedic stuff i am an aries you always just clock it back Hmm. it's basically i mean that's that's basically how it works it's just the whole uh housing i
1: did not know that
0: he mentioned to me something about it like it was you have to kind of go in terms of of time and Mm -hmm. so like if you go based on how things are now then that, then I would be a Libra moon. But if you go back thousands of years ago, when the Greeks were doing astrology, my moon would be Scorpio.
4: Okay. According to him.
0: I, I mean, he just felt basically was the, a lot of the Western astrology has actually, has not actually evolved. It's sort of stuck in certain principles that were from a long time ago.
2: Oh yeah. There's, a, there's always been a big divide in the schools and uh Uh, i like them both i think they both serve a different purpose there's uh i think i definitely think the vedic sidereal stuff is way more accurate with predictions and all that but the tropical serves its purpose and if for nothing else if for nothing else it's that millions of people buy into it and create energy and feed it and so but there but there is still a lot to it nonetheless so this is not a show on astrology so i mean we could just talk all day and there's so many of these hot discussions that in involve the two systems and and really the systems break down to more than that because it's it's you know we can you know like everything else are shoots of the western that then comes into like Hellenistic and Babylonian. I mean, it's just on and on. So, okay, yeah. I wanted to get that. For some reason, I kept intuiting that you were a fire sign, though sun sign. And I, I don't know why I thought Aries. I, you look like an Aries to me, though. <laughs> and I think that's why. Uh, okay, so these dreams are interesting. And were any of them ever reoccur? These the rough ones from this early period from you know seven seven on in the rough period were any of them recurring oh definitely so like these death ones are interesting and it's we had just talked even though this show's gonna go out later i think it was last week's guess maybe i don't know it was a recent guest who had just who died in their dreams too i don't hear that a lot it's not it's not super common. I know it is in the bigger discussion of dreams, but we, Jerry and I just haven't had a lot of people come on here that have. They come close and they wake up. So Right.
0: And it's just there's a theory that people say, like, well, if you die in your dreams, that means you actually are dead in real life
2: yeah right and and that's an that's an urban legend Uh,
3: um,
1: or if you die in this in this simulation that's the one that i laugh at the most (laughs) i I, I don't i'm not talking about like earth being a sim i'm talking about like on tv shows where they're in some kind of virtual environment and they're like don't die you'll die in real life it's like what
2: like the island yeah yeah (laughs) it's well it's interesting because i'm i'm are we dead i mean this is my question anyway i mean what is what is it
1: i think the better question is are we alive
2: right well i've been coming at it from that angle recently too but i did do a video on that a couple years ago and and definitely last salon it's uh but they're the same to me life and death it's just i think it's like the upside down world. Or you know how Stranger Things almost does it like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fringe too. Yes, exactly. Fringe is a great example. Mm-hmm. Always a example. So
4: Well, yeah, um, I mean for sure. I'm sorry,
0: I just, just real quickly, I think that death is something that is uh, has always been extremely important. But uh, you know, just I think it's something that you know when we experience death in in, in life, it, uh, it um really shines a light on everything else and uh um uh, not to get into it too much but like it, i feel like in some ways humanity might have to face its own death soon you know as a reality um but that's a whole other topic I'm well, let's, let's, dude, join let's, the club.
2: let's ruminate <laughs> on that for a minute because we you know that's definitely in all of this all of these subjects are within Knox it's just we I try to just keep weaving it into, it's all states of consciousness. The show's about states of consciousness in the end. So, re- so give us your idea on this, Derek. This is very provocative. I love it.
0: Well, I mean, it, it just came out recently. There was a report um, basically saying that, um, you know, at w- what's happening right now in terms of climate change, in terms of global warming, you know, um, that, um, you know, the, the, the four main sort of looters of the world, the United States, China, number one, but then India and Russia are, are way behind in terms of being able to do something about making a difference to, to halt the disaster that's impending. And the Europeans are probably doing the best, but even they are really not doing as much as they probably should. And uh, we're we're kind of in that situation right now as a species, where um, it's like it's emergency time, and, uh, and instead we're hearing about you know the impeachment of of, of Trump, which is sure you know there's some validity to that, but then there's millions and millions of other trivial things that are either pushed down our throat or we're happily eating up, and uh, the, the fact of the matter is that the window for opportunity for us to survive is getting really, really, really small. And uh there's a really good chance that we're not gonna make it past this century. Uh, And we're looking at some really horrific things happening to us, to this planet and to us as a species. And I think that, you know, if, of course we wanna try to save ourselves and hopefully we can, but there's also this other aspect of sort of like, you know, like when someone's told Hey, you've got six months to live. You know, uh, we're kind of getting to that point where we're only going to have a number of decades left, uh, and we have to decide as a species what are we going to do with the remaining six months. And uh, you know, I think that um, you're going to get a lot of different <laughs> responses to that. A lot of religious responses. A lot of people are going to turn to religion, of course, uh, as a knee-jerk kind of reaction. I think. And uh, but in in a way, it might give us an opportunity to really live life um, in a deep and meaningful way if we really truly embrace our deaths and confront it in a way where we can take advantage of it and take advantage of the remaining time that we have. And it's really you know something that I have felt very strongly about for a long time. And I think that mortality, and I think that death, is a very important thing to have present in your life, because, um, you know, when, it, when even before my father died and my grandmother died, you know, my son's birth, the most beautiful experience of my life, was sandwiched, bookended, by first my grandmother's death on on April Fool's, April first, I watched her die in front of me in the hospital, and then uh, three months later, my son was born. And three months later after my son was born, my dad died completely unexpectedly. And uh, and that was very heartbreaking for me because I was very close to my biological father the last nine years of his life. And so here I witnessed the beginning of life
4: and uh,
0: also witnessed the end of life, uh, you know, within a six-month period. And I I always just sort of knew that either my, my son could die, I could die. Any of us could die and knowing that, well, what was I going to do with my life? And, um, I think it would be really healthy in a lot of ways for humanity to just start
4: looking at ourselves and, and knowing that our, our, our clock is ticking and what are we going to do?
2: Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's an old, it's an old
4: meditative practice for sure to, to step into death and to
2: derive energy from your own death and uh, there are some real deep esoteric uh, schools of praxis here that that do that and I am curious here I love this that I love it because I feel at one with death a lot of people clearly you've gone through a lot of death and and I have too. and I, that always I think it's an enriching experience and I have a I have a I don't think we die but this is an interesting synchronicity so it's your grandmother that died on April Fools yeah and and my grandmother was born on April Fools so I find that like I hear April Fools and a grandmother and immediately you know it's it's an interesting interesting thing right uh, Interesting parallel there when so I would like to talk about some of these deaths. Did you recall having dreams around the periods of any of these significant deaths in your lives, either before or right around the time or right after dreams that cluster around the event of death, the death of a loved
0: one well actually it was um kind of odd because um prior to my grandmother's death and my my father's death i um so i actually even before i got into the occults my dad would do um uh my tarot reading every year uh, at least once a year and uh and he was you know i, I i've been was influenced a lot by him he was an agnostic um uh, and he was very um pragmatic individual uh and um very humanist and um but he did like to do the tarot readings and he felt that even if it wasn't necessarily had any spiritual uh validity to it, they were just, you know, some cards, right? Uh he still felt that it benefited people psychologically. And he would find a way to do people's tarot readings that would uh he could use them as tools to help people. Um and so he would do my tarot reading every year. And the last tarot reading that he did for me, the main card that he drew was the death card. And um, I don't know why, but I had this really strange premonition even before that. And then especially after he did that tarot reading that um, that, I would, that I would actually die. I felt for some reason that I had this strong feeling that I would die um, even before, actually before my son would be born. Um, so I actually wrote one of my novels is about that. Uh, one of my novels called life is, uh, is the most autobiographical book that I, I've written. And it's about the possibility if I were to die. And, uh, and if I were to die, then I wanted to write about my life, um, up until that time, uh, and to share it with my son so that he knew what kind of person his father was. and uh, that's you know, this basically the story, it's my largest book too, where I, I go into a lot of the relationships that I had with people, both uh, romantic relationships and friendships and family relationships, and um, just to share who I was. Uh, and um, so I had that kind of premonition, this really strong, just feeling that I would die. And then of course, I didn't die, but my, my grandmother died, which was somewhat which was expected she was 94 but my father I you know he was 64 when he died so um I didn't expect him to die but definitely the premonition of death was was very strongly felt and uh,
4: and it it resulted in a book that I wrote and it, you know resulted in the experience of actually losing my father that's incredible it, it just the image I'm
2: getting from, you know, the last reading he gives you and the death card comes out and uh, yeah, it's incredible imagery to look in on. And also what a gift to other people, not just your son, but especially your son to have that book and your words to ruminate on later uh and in general death doesn't get enough airtime in western society we're really detached from it and it it's uh you know i mean there are major fears around it here where there are not in other parts of the world uh and we just created this this big veil so it's for me all death talk is healthy talk in my opinion i've been talking about death my whole life. It's just been around me my whole life and uh and and then I also got to experience the fact that it does seem to just get people it becomes like that t m i you know like oh it's too much or it's not not in proper society or or right. not in you know like it's you get to talk about it when someone's died and at funerals it's like (laughs) you know it's like it's just very limited experience of it and then even our our death Yeah. yeah well even our death culture how separated we are from the bodies and stuff but you know like here i allow any animal that dies three days to sit on my table like a Victorian and older, and if they were close animals, and so all the animals go through it and we experience it you know just like they did a hundred years ago and beyond where they lay uncle's body out on on the piano or the the kitchen table and and we all mourn you know, and so this is this is important. Because the more familiar we are with these things, and these ideas, the less mysterious they become. Or and and things in in and under the guise of mystery tend to garner a fear, don't you think?
4: Well, I think it, it's a um, it's the fear the fear of death uh,
0: that is is so strong amongst human beings that um, what the mystery that you're talking about, I think it's like a, a fear of, of the fear of that mysterious experience that is death because we don't we don't know what exactly happens when it comes to death. And so I think that there's a, I know what you mean. Like there's two, there's sort of two sides to the mystery of death and that there's this one side that wants to keep it a mystery, but does it in this kind of fearful way and pushing death away and, repressing it and just not dealing with it and then there's this other which you described very well like the sort of like embrace of that that experience of that mysterious thing that we call death and um and i think you know so much of our of life is is it's a lived experience that we have to go through it um that you know it's it's interesting because we you know here we are in the 21st century, the end of 2019, and a lot of people want to claim that we have really evolved in a lot of ways and uh, have really, you know, we've we've grown out of certain social repressions and so forth. But in in some ways that's true, and in other ways it's completely not. And other ways we're very uptight, and uh, we have a a society now where people are in a lot of ways extremely uptight. And um, it um, just—I think that one of the ways that can help people to break those chains of that uptightness that we have in our society is to face death, because death really—you know—it starts to—you know—it forces individuals to really confront what's what's really valuable. You know, how much, you know, and and how much time and effort and energy are we going to spend on certain things that are just really not worth our time and energy, you know, and how much money and how much, just so much that we put into this shit that, you know, and here we are, we're going to die tomorrow. And this is how we want to spend our time, you know, and so, yeah.
2: Well, this, this is the thing, and this is what makes it especially particular to Western culture is that it behooves the architectural structure of Western culture to keep it under wraps, to keep keep it in a kind of a repressive way and neatly over here in this corner and you you have this time to mourn. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to be around the body. There needs to be
4: very little to do with it because when you give a certain amount of time to pondering thinking about
2: dwelling within and and upon an idea something that is transcendental like death you you breed a certain freedom and that that kind of freedom doesn't behoove the architects of Western culture. Western culture needs people to stay in line and, and focused on the carnal world around them to function. And in, in the face of something that is, is big like death that, that takes you out of, into a deeper sense of meaning and where you find meaning and, and what's going on into questioning reality. Uh, This is, this can be very dangerous. It's very dangerous to the structure we live in, in the Western culture. So I understand it from that perspective. If you're, you're really trying to keep everyone on the wheel. Otherwise, and then this is part of that whole narrative that goes down and is threatening about any kind of devastation that can happen where you question, why am I doing something? Does it matter if tomorrow, does it matter what, that I'm going to a job and trying to sell you some shoes? If tomorrow I know that there's going to be a big earthquake and everything about my life is going to come down and boil down to survival, I won't go and try and sell you shoes or whatever I'm doing. That's on this wheel that keeps this all moving. And so this stuff is extremely important to question and kind of ruminate with, I think. And so with all this, I'm wondering about some of the, the underpinnings of your dream life so that the, the architecture of your dream life how, and this can be at this moment where you are in life or it could be a totality of your life as a dreamer uh, but how does it look how do you experience the dreamscape Do you see scent you know is it black and white sense color can you read all that basic stuff
0: well what i have have tried to do um, as an artist uh for a long long time is try to open myself up to the dream state while i'm conscious so i i, I have kind of not done a lot of
4: um uh,
0: uh, uh, uh dream journaling or um paying attention to my dreams uh what what I've done was i i, I kind of wanted to do um since i don't know since my teens almost when i was writing stories and then as a filmmaker and then went back to writing is to open myself up to this subconscious world to this or unconscious world this unseen realm that's that that i and i and i felt really strongly that there actually wasn't this divide between the conscious and the subconscious uh as strongly as as a lot of people feel and that and that you can kind of find a way to open yourself up, and um, the way I did it was, um, well, well, it was through a lot of heavy meditation, and um, also just conscious, conscious decision to allow myself to see myself, my mind, my body as a vehicle, as a vessel for a spirit world, or a, or a higher dimensional world, or the unseen world. And have it come through my art and uh, then I in my later on in my 20s I started to experiment with psychedelics and uh, I was doing a fair amount of, of acid and uh, you know those experiences on, on acid were extremely helpful for me because all of the things in my subconscious just came flooding out and all of the things that I had my desires my fears were just where they were no longer hidden. They were no longer repressed. They were no longer in this unseen realm and it became part of the scene. And um, so, at sometimes in, in dangerous ways,
4: but um, in terms of how I, 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 you know, for me, all of my, especially when I sort of
0: became involved in this style of writing, which I call chaos riddle prose, which is like a surrealist way of writing where I allow and almost not an automatic writing, but a very similar allow things to come from my subconscious and onto paper. And so I would have a lot of times things that were, did seem uh, unrelated or, or uh, unconnected just come through, and fi- and through words. So, so 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 for me, these these this dream state found a way of expressing and finding a way into my written work and uh so in regards to answering your question i don't know if that answers your question but um that's how that's basically how my relationship with the dream world has become is um that i i, I really try to merge the conscious and the and the dream state into one as much as i can um and uh and, and it's it's i think has has really paid off because um So much has kind of been
4: revealed to me, and it may not be immediate, but it eventually kind of is shown, and um, it can be very powerful.
2: Do you, so in the dreamscape, in the dream world, and I, and I, I just want to state this, I think anyone that follows our show knows this. I think one of the main goals is to awaken within the dream. In fact, I think that's, I think that's paramount. And there's a lot of this. You can find this language everywhere, including the Bible. You know, the dreamer loves to dream and stuff like that. Uh, and because the idea of awakening or rising within within the plane, the field we're on, is a very big deal. And so it, in its, it, it it may be the big deal. And part of what what is underpinning all of this, and and it can certainly overlap into lots of theories out there, like sim theory and all this. However, when you're so say like just on a basic level, Derek, do you when you're in just a normal dream? And I don't want I hate to use the word normal because what is it? But when you're, when you've gone to sleep at night, so like tonight, for example, and you've gotten past anything, you know, this conversation here, this other stuff you did in the day, all that, and you've fallen into REM or, you know, you get into dream states, even, even the liminal stuff beforehand. Is there a look to your dreams? Is there a feel to your dreams? And, you know, for me i i i see seem to see things in color and the more lucid i get the more vibrant things become the more uh, also pinpointed things become so for me in a, in a, when i become more lucid i notice my focus hones in and i've got almost like tunnel vision on what i'm 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 focused on and everything else has kind of a haziness to it. Uh, so that kind of stuff. It's not black and white. Script is often, looks like hieroglyphics to me. So words don't really look like words. They look like hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that. It, I, uh, for me in the dreamscape, I have a very extensive uh, sense of hearing, everything feels very kind of in stereo, and uh, and I can at times, and this depends on lucidity and which is the amount of awake I am, can extend my senses here, and this is part of what we were just talking about, where I can get into the whole smell thing and uh in extreme sensei where it's so sensitive to touch and you know this is why i've enjoyed wet dreams i like to i jokingly say wet dreams but the sens- <laughs> the, this because those are definitely my favorite the sensual <laughs> dreams i love those especially when this this you know this the deal's sealed <laughs> you know and I've, and I've walked away a happy camper and uh So I'm wondering what does the basic dreamscape, the dream look like to you? How do you dream just on a basic level?
0: Well, I I definitely feel like I do dream in, in, in color. Um, and when I do dream it, um, you know, I, I find that a lot of, um, things, and this is, I'm sure is very common, just a lot of really bizarre things that don't seem to make sense happen. And, uh, uh, what i've no, what I've noticed a lot in my dreams is that i'll see people that I know uh in real life and either either currently they're involved in my life or that could have been years and years ago and I haven't seen them for a long time and I'll find myself in situations which are completely not relevant to my reality so like for example like you know i i uh, I, I have uh had dreams where uh, I had a uh, um, an ex, like a boss who was hitting on me and uh, was coming on to me in some club or a bar or something. And uh, and uh, although that maybe actually may have been, I, I, I think I had some feelings at the time that he might have had been attracted to me. And so that maybe that's where that came from. But then it was weird because it was a dream that I had and it was like years after i'd even thought about this person you know and um and i'll have other situations where i'm a completely different person i'm a completely like very different behaviors different mentality different attitude different beliefs just and and i'm uh, and i'm in some other really bizarre situation that doesn't seem to connect with anything to do with my current life um for, for one thing, as someone who has you know been sober uh, from from drugs and alcohol for a number of years now about about six uh one thing that I've had over the years, especially in the beginning that first year or two where I had a lot of dreams of, of relapsing or I would actually dream about you know uh, picking up the pipe again and uh doing crystal again or drinking alcohol again and 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 being with women that I was with at the time and and now on adventures with them again and uh and in a panic in the dream uh or either directly after waking up that i was i'd actually relapsed I was just so, it felt so vivid and so real that I, I thought i had gone back to doing uh you know crystal again
4: uh
0: or living that lifestyle again you know and then a few it took a, a few seconds of after waking up from the dream to realize that no no i didn't do that you know, that that for sure was something that happened a lot. But the thing with, with what is interesting to me is that these these dreams that I would have where it seemed to be a completely different reality. So, like, for example, like the one dream, the dreams that I would have about that old super boss or whatever that was hitting on me on a club that had some relationship to reality because I had feelings that he might have been... uh he had an attraction to me. So there was some connection there, but there's these other dreams that I have where it is completely different, like an alternative reality. Like it was something that this was from some other place. And that's what's has tripped me out over the years uh, regarding uh, my dreams.
2: Do you have any examples offhand of these kind of other reality dreams?
0: Sure. Uh, So there have been times when I've dreamed like I was uh, a real nine to fiver kind of person, office person, who had a uh, you know had a, had a family, uh, had the house, and was just very suburban, very just sort of normal, and um, and it was just and I could feel it like I could feel like I was in that person's skin, and I was completely comfortable being that nine to fiver dude, you know, and just being really like happy with. And this is like, this is exactly what I wanted, you know, like I, I worked for it or whatever, you know, like, it, I mean, you know, I landed what my dream job, the house, the two cars, the kids, the wife and all that, you know, and um, I, like I've never been married. I've never wanted the whole nine to five job kind of thing. I've never wanted that house and two car thing like that. Just has never been a part of any part of my script in this life. And yet I would have these dreams where, that was exactly what I wanted. And, um, that would be one example. Uh, another one would be maybe not so drastically different, but it could be, you know, I was an actor, um, which I have, I have done some acting in my life, you know, and really enjoyed it. So it was something that, that I I could almost wish I could be, but there's been times where I wish I pursued an acting career, you know, um, and lived it so it's like an alternative life that i wish i could have had but i just don't have the time for it and it's not my priority but it just would have been cool perhaps to have lived that life um those are like a couple of different examples of, of, of dreams that i've had over the years
2: let's talk about so let's move deeper into this idea of lucidity and i guess for the common uh the common tongue too. So what about being, so lucid dreams and then just like out-of-body astral traveling stuff. How do you experience these things?
0: Uh, well, you know, in terms of either one, I'll have to admit I'm not experienced in either astral travel. Uh, I read about it and I understand the principles behind it and uh, lucid dreaming as well. Uh, I would say that, you
4: know, when it comes to them, um, I feel that they have a direct
0: relationship to the here and now. I feel like, that there is some um, there is some reality in that. You know, me being an agnostic, of course, I I I, I don't didn't I don't I don't feel like it 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 doesn't exist, but I also feel I, I leave room for believing that it doesn't. And it does, so if that makes sense. And um, so I feel like that there is some realm of of astral experience that is there. Um, I haven't explored that, you know, and, and there, there might be a time in my life when I do, um, but for the most part, any of these kinds of experiences, um, I've sort of indirectly explored them through my writing, through my art. Uh, I feel that in a lot of ways, when we, as a writer, when we write stories, when we create this whole world, uh the important thing to do is you want to make your characters as vivid or as lucid as possible, and you you want to transport the reader to a completely other realm and um And you know the best writers from Shakespeare to dostoevsky are are extremely good at this, and um, I feel like that is not that different. From my limited knowledge of uh, uh, to people who have explored lucid dreaming and to astral projection astral travel um and i think that it, it's interesting because i feel like that in many ways we we do experience that on a daily basis uh in just different
4: ways in a more unconscious not really conscious way of doing it. yeah i agree i mean one
2: of the One of the ways I look at it all at this point, and anyone that listens to this show knows this, that from waking life to what's considered dream life and even into memory and into future uh, active imagination, it's all states of lucidity and how clear and focused it gets. And so to straight up astral, traveling it's where it's the pinpoint of consciousness at the moment and how much energy is being generated within it to create the real experience that's happening so i uh
4: so this idea of you were talking earlier about
2: awakening awake dreaming and uh all of this and then you tied in psychedelics which is a wonderful thing. You know, I I did quite a lot of psychedelics in the eighties. And particularly when I lived in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean a lot, quite, quite a lot. And uh this was <laughs> uh-huh. you know, at least twice a week, at least. And so usually on weekends. However, it could just linger on. And then certainly I had patches in the nineties where, you know, I just had a whole drain a temple and, uh, you know, we were really seeking doing a lot of ritual work with people and seeking out religious, not really, I don't want to say religious, seeking out ecstatic experiences. Uh And, uh, And so psychedelics really played a role there too. So, and for me, it was very, all of the psychedelics separate from anything else, just the psychedelics uh, were pivotal for me in, in breaking the idea of reality as, you know, they cracked up in my world. There's a definite before, after. I'm sure you understand that.
4: Exactly. Yeah. It yeah, go ahead.
2: And so it, and you know, I I'm not a pusher and I don't want to push it, but I just do think that it's a get one of the great ways to to be confronted with the otherness of this experience we're all having and Definitely. and it 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 opens up these amazing pathways, even the bad experiences, which is ultimately why I stopped because it was becoming one bad trip after another, especially in that period when I was seeking higher consciousness and ecstatic experiences, when I'd gotten out of the, like, let's take acid and have fun, you know, the earlier days. Uh, So that informed a lot of my worldview that I've, I've moved forward with. And of course we have the greats like McKenna and all this, all these people, there's just such a great ball of information and people to stand on when talking about this. But I want to know about how this affected you. How did your world change and uh, your experiences around consciousness within and specifically to psychedelics and not not crystal and the other stuff.
4: Yeah, I, I, I what was it, was it really
0: was explosive um, in a way in a lot of ways where when you are taking these psychedelics, you know, uh, whatever it may be, you know, um, and uh, it does open you up to things that are going on inside you and outside of you.
4: And I feel like that's where that whole, you know, sort of direct experience with the other, whether
0: it's a, a higher dimension or a spirit world or God knows what it is, but like that something other that um if you once you open yourself up to that, it can bombard you. Um, and that's when it becomes very dangerous for a lot of people. And it's a very, it's not something to play around with. And, um, but there's, there was a really, really, there was a really strong value for me, um, to do it. And, um, it was actually the first time that I had did it and it was just one tab of acid. But when I did it, it was shortly after the death of my, my grandmother and, uh, my dad, you know, he was uh he spent 3 years in prison in the early 70s because he was selling uh synthetic mescaline and um he was part of you know he really believed it he wasn't just you know a drug dealer he felt like he was part of a, a revolution and um that's what he believes at th- at the time you know and then um I, and, I, and I
4: and I feel like when it comes to that experience of psychedelics and how of a really powerful tool it can be i feel that um it was only going to enhance uh
0: what was already there inside and i and and from my experiences with other people doing psychedelics that's what it does for people in general and that you know it will open you up to this other world but You're only going to get what you're going to get out of it because of where you already are. And it certainly will advance or evolve a person in a certain way. But I feel like that it it really only, a lot of the real mind expansion has to take place on one's own sort of work and own time or own play. And a lot of the really true mind expanding that I have experienced over the years have, as, as, um, has happened irregardless of the of the substances I was taking. And uh, the only thing that w- I would say though about acid or anything else, mushrooms or mescaline or peyote or whatnot, is that it, it can help person to open those doors. But it most definitely, it didn't do the work for me. It didn't do, and I don't think it does the work for most people, and I think the problem is that people tend to get hung up on it. And I uh, that was one thing I wanted to avoid and even when i was doing drugs you know even when i did and eventually became addicted to crystal meth was i i I knew i didn't want it to be like that was going to make me gain a higher consciousness and so the the sort of the uh uh all of the different insights into life that i was receiving you know while i was tripping out and uh and different just personal things i was going through Psychological stuff, the joy, the pain, uh, all of that, you know, was already there, and uh, I had to continue developing it on my own time, whether I was high or whether I was sober, um, and that means following along like a train of thought. And I think that's one thing that I really, really appreciate about that experience with 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 acid, and and then after that, I took more and more tabs and became more and more intense. Was that it really opened me, opened me up into embracing um chaos uh in that it it really showed to me that like, that was the inherent nature of existence that certain things will come at you like as you know very well from experiencing this, you'll have one insight right about something, and then that insight will be followed by something else that will, will either be a continuation or will be a direct contradiction to that insight, and so then you have like one thing after another. And then you realize, and that's where it can get so overwhelming, is it's just like our brains are not really wired to process all these contradictory things. But if you if you look into the heart of what seems to be going on, both in this materialist experience and what may be beyond it, is that it's so complex and it's just so um, intense that I think just just barely opening yourself up to all these different possibilities and never getting too stuck on one thing or two things, but allowing yourself to be open to going to another and to another and to another that is where we can really start to touch um, into real true transcendence. And that's where I really and I continue to, to just value that in my life as I went through my ups and my downs in life, that it was... Um, i was getting to get the most out of life if
4: i embraced that inherent nature to existence which was uh or which is is chaos
2: yeah i i agree with pretty much all of what you just said it's uh it, and when i look back and i i when i looked back actually cuz this is all past tense anyway uh it and i tried to analyze why i was ha- where my bad experiences were i mean i he had a, here i had a couple of really super bad trips that led into deeply deep, deep states of paranoia that you know one was like on snap and I, that's why i left san francisco uh i mean this is hide under the bed kind of snap
0: <laughs> right well that's where that it will take you there you know yeah i, I mean there was there was times like that too where i almost threw myself in front of him some cars or almost yeah. off the cliff, you know, it was just, you know, and those are just, and, and I've known people who have jumped off a tree well on it and thought
4: they could fly.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been around it and seen it too. And it, so this is what, this is where I came with, it was like when I looked back, I could see that all of my, what I considered my bad experiences at the time, because it, it's all valuable information, everything is for me and, and from where I stand
4: definitely
2: in, in this process of of what's going on here is is valuable. It was that my perspective was so limited. So the bad experiences really revolved around some of the people. I was hanging around with,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the the point of reference with these people, you know, some of them were just in it to be high and party and see how weird things could get. And uh, I've always been a deeply spiritual person, even as a little kid. Like, but I came into my flesh as like this, you know. I felt like I was trapped and having a a paralysis experience before i was you know when i woke up in as a baby <laughs> so mm-hmm. i came out strange to begin with and then had to deal with the world around me dealing with my strangeness and so get me into these party situations with psychedelics i'm already out there and you know, listening to Susie Sue and everyone's passing around the bong while we're on acid and har haring and all you that. Got to create... smoke a
1: little weed when you're tripping.
2: Oh, oh, we smoked. We definitely smoked tons of it while we were Su- tripping. was
1: on the trip, quite a bit.
2: And it, well, it didn't. Didn't. It just depended on. I think the batch. For whatever but the weed was always flowing forever (laughs) it was it was definitely flowing the sacred herb and uh but it was context to what was going on and those experiences that were more party-like inevitably led to bad experiences where at the at the very beginning at the very 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 beginning and i think i was probably like 11 when i first did lsd it was fun that all i did was laugh that very first trip it was all i i still remember it vividly and it was all laughter everything was so absurd to me
0: <laughs> in,
2: in the world that it it was like this sacred divine comedy right you
0: were, Wait, you were 11
2: yeah i was 11 wow. did
0: my son is 14 right now and i just can't even imagine him you know doing that at
2: 14 <laughs> oh i was a runaway living in frisco when i was 14 with a fake id and you know kissing Tom weights and all kinds of crazy <laughs> i've had a crazy fun life
1: so my uh, kids are 20 <laughs> excuse, me. <laughs> excuse me 20 20 God. Hmm. 20 and 22 i can't imagine them doing acid and like handling it right <that>.
3: <laughs>
2: I had, I mean, I, you know, I just had, to, I just came in on such a strange, I'm a strange, strange fire <laughs> and just came in this way. I came in with a lot of, uh, I don't know, I think I just set up a, an interesting course of classes to take and, and went for it, but whatever. So those first, the first experiences were really, really fun. And it was this existential, absurd theater of the absurd theater of the mind laughter just the deepest soul laughing about reality around me i mean i would look around i remember it so vividly looking around and how people were all suited up and and running around like like puppets right and it was so just it was so phenomenal and then i got sucked into doing you you know those were under party circumstances by the way, but that's where my mindset was. And then it just got, it spiraled out of control. So, and that's where paranoia started set in because I wasn't coming at it from, from this more, uh, for me, it needed to be more sacred and I needed to be basically alone. And and maybe snuggled up in blankets or in a dark room. And that's where I would go with it. And then anyone that's done LSD understands this, that the, the come down is the best. The clarity that you get, and this was the, if there was a dragon for LSD to chase for me, this was it. It was the, it was the 13 hours later when everything's becoming clear and these images, this incredible journey if if you had an incredible journey even if you didn't and it was a bad trip the clarity that comes in afterwards of the universe around you the cosmos your place in it is so amazing and overwhelming that that is what if I could have at any time, just skipped all the rest and got to that point of clarity where I've come back into my body. I'm grounded and I feel safe. And now I have this bigger, expansive idea. Like I've, I've gone to the great cosmos somewhere. I've gone to some planets somewhere else. And now I'm coming back and I'm I'm like, whoa, look at what I just went through and trying to, you know, like looking at
1: Polaroids of it or something. It's like the balloon of your awareness is still inflated, but you're fully in charge of your faculties.
2: Yes, absolutely. And it's a beautiful thing. It is.
1: I remember just looking at the clouds going, oh, (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah. I know. Isn't it great? Yeah, it is.
1: I totally agree. That is a great thing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I love to trip out on clouds and just like there, there's these times of, of of complete clarity and you're looking at, at clouds or mountains or the ocean or even buildings and you're just in awe of of what you see in front of you and and it just it's really nice to be able to experience that you know at any given time
4: yeah
2: it it's uh it was good And then ultimately, I mean, even when later in in like the early 90s and stuff, I think probably was the last time I did LSD. uh, I when I was doing it at the temple, uh, and we were doing it for ritualistic, higher consciousness, ecstatic seeking experiences. I you know those that ran its course too, and and it was like. It would inevitably. This has always turned me off, no matter what. And I'm a Taurus. I'm a very sensual person, and I think a lot. And a lot of times, people overread that too. Like, I and I still get this feedback that people just overread that. I'm a. I'm very sensual. It's just part of my nature. I'm not intentionally trying to be sensual. I'm. I'm not love bombing or you know, I, I'm well past kitten years. And uh, I just have no desire for that, but I still read as essential person, and so that energy has always come to me. And the last, uh, and I've never been one to be on psychedelics and want to have sex. I don't think that ever happened, by the way. Uh, I so, found it
1: difficult and distracting. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, I, I can't. Just, I think I would be grossed out looking at genitals on yeah. LSD. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Oh I was. my god. <laughs> and so I don't want those experiences and so in that particular group at the temple there were a lot of old hippies that that did get involved in that and they really brought in some of that and it it would always put me off and so the trip started to be bad they'd start out great we're like exploring consciousness we're doing ritual we're doing really great like breathing and and yogic uh exercises around it and then some of the the hippie generation that i and i these are people i love i still love several of them are dead now uh and several from my generation are dead now but when that vibe started to come on it's like oh man. what can I do to get out of here? I am not, right, this is right. not gonna. I was never an orgy person. So I was like, this is not, I'm not having this. And so then immediately my experience would just go sour, like great, right. right, like heights of ecstasy, spiritual ecstasy, not religious, spiritual, internal spiritual ecstasy to holy shit why are genitals starting to be involved and what what is going on and somebody's sucking a dick next to me you know it's like and the hands coming my way you know like oh no <laughs> and, and so that would turn into like dodging and trying to figure out how to get off get off hilarious get out <laughs> and so ultimately I just stopped. I stopped because of these reasons yeah and got, and got a bad taste because right, of these reasons right. because so many people i know would break down into sexuality during these experiences and it was uh it was it was just always hard to
0: believe for me right well i i think that a lot of times people um even when we call an experience that we're doing spiritual or religious uh you know it, it or magical or esoteric it's um we uh we never really get rid of the the so-called the human dimension and that is there's a lot of um a lot of weird shit that goes on in terms of how there's the the, the interpersonal relationships be- between people and uh uh you know uh it just it's so delicate in a lot of ways when you when you think about like you know Sexual relations, and as, as beautiful as it is, and it is, you know, one of the most beautiful experiences in life. But it also brings a lot of, um, just, you know, there's a depredatory nature. There's the, is there's the um, taking advantage there of people. There is the sort of the, um, the feelings that go along with um, being uh, violated or being the violator and it just there's a lot of like hang-ups you know and it's as much as people want to be liberated whether they're hippies or ex-hippies or or new agers or or sexual liberation people like no one i think is really however enlightened a person is that never no one has ever completely
4: uh
0: you know transcends human insecurities and uh and i think it's one of the problems with a lot of um people who 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 get involved in in, in groups and whatnot is that there there tends to be kind of a dismissiveness of those kinds of, of interpersonal experiences because uh you know in sort of in the name of wanting to impose certain spiritual principles or practices on human feelings you know and uh uh, it's just interesting that you brought
4: that up because uh, you, I think one one I think that's a shared experience that a lot of people have. Yeah, it, it's
2: it. I mean, I think anyone that's having great healthy sex, it, sex is great. I love sex, and um, but I've I've never I'm I don't have an addictive personality, so I've I've never really I've never been addicted to anything except for say. It, it could be said coffee was maybe a vice of mine for a very long time. Uh, but I didn't ever view it as, you know, I don't know. And and so I'd, I don't come from that perspective of need in, in the way that like addiction kind of sets in. and And certainly not with sex, but also I had had that early... I had all that early stuff that went on with uh you know the ill side of familial sexuality and then having been a young runaway got got kind of pushed into some bad situ- situations that I just am not gonna talk about here. But you know, kind of trafficked into some bad situations for some years.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: with the whole Lolito program, let's put it that way. And, but I never came from the victim. And so I've always come from, I take every situation as I'm, how can I, how can I drive this situation? Here comes an income, on- you know, here comes traffic at me and how do I sort of to avoid and not crash? I'm one of those people. I'm not a panicker. I don't panic. I don't close my eyes and scream. I don't scream. I don't run because I'm not fast. So I've always had to rely on my intellect to get me out of situations and talking. So it's just, these are things that make me function. And so I I bring these qualities into everything. And that includes healthy sex. And that includes all this stuff we're talking about. So I I just want to state that. You know that I love sex. I know it sounds like I'm a prude sometimes. So I'm, and anyone that knows me knows I'm not. I'm definitely not a prude. Uh, so, but I do see it just gets co opted and gets nasty, and I right. don't like. I, and especially when we start talking about substances, including alcohol, how retarded that can all get. And I mean that in right. the in the common sense, not in the in the mentally challenged sense it in in a more vulgar sense as an adjective to describe poor behavior uh, right so that said within this consciousness exploration though that was something I definitely wanted to touch on with you it, it is it's fascinating and I like where you've come from with all of this you've really brought a great deal of uh intense images out like a true novelist. This is one things you're really enjoyable to listen to, by the way. You paint <sighs> you you do paint pictures. And so this idea of of awakening within the dream and psychedelics as a gateway, have you ever been able to see so you did bring in the idea of blending the two of, of of dreaming and the awakening state. And to me, this is one of those ascended things and one of the things we sh- sh- I think we should be doing or exploring.
4: Right, right.
2: And so I'm wondering where is the line for you? Where has the, the ceiling been for you in in awakening within the dream in this this experience? Because I say this because there is this idea of unlocking the code. And what I mean by that is we get into things like Christ consciousness and uh, Buddha consciousness, this transcendental idea of uh, of true awakening that has nothing to do with religion. And so when we start talking about this blend between dreaming and uh, the awake state, this is part of that experience. It it's part of the code that we see in some of the ascended masters that people have built cults around.
0: Right. Right. I, I think that um I think that in many in many ways might be the, the point to life is is to unlock that code, so to speak. And um
4: I think that um it can be done in a lot of different ways um and i think that um i
0: think it's an ongoing process too i don't think that like when one when one when someone gets to that point where they feel that they've unlocked it right whether it's with christ consciousness or buddha consciousness or opening the third eye or whatever it may be and whatever terminology people are comfortable with
4: you know um I think that it really uh, is a, a a point where um, you have a whole new life that was sort of not touched before, and uh, and and to really say that you know my life is whatever it may be
0: in terms of. How you perceive it, but my life is is something which is um, so in, in a lot of ways um, beyond me, and that there is this whole other realm of experience that for us as human beings, in our own limited way, we can only
4: touch on. And I think it's important to know that in in a, in a kind of really humble position to. Meets that unlocking with that humility, so that
0: it's we're reaching that point where we're not i mean to to, to use the word master i, I, I it, it is okay i think from for for me i i i feel it's um it's important to know that there are certain points i feel that people can reach or tap into. That unlocking uh, unconsciously with it, without them even knowing it um, you see people who have very low levels of consciousness on the on the regular right and their day-to-day living they re- live a really mundane consciousness and there can be moments where they unlock that those gateways and so really deep truths can come out and then so true can be people who are are so you know the quote-unquote masters right whether it be a christ or a buddha or or whoever you know depending on your belief system whatever you're comfortable with and uh
4: and and those people are just as capable of the mundane and the ignorant and the you know just the, the, the 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 really just um
0: uh low levels of consciousness and i and i think it's really important for for you people to understand that like I, I i would not would never want to consider myself like a master for example and i feel like that is a as it can be a really big trap um for people because uh you see that with gurus like you mentioned people reach that point and then they start uh creating a cult to control other people and uh and and the whole purpose of like, for example, why I created Love Chaos was like, I was trying to create something to avoid that. And uh, and whether it's successful or not, it is, I wanted to at least do it for myself. It, even if Love Chaos doesn't really appeal to anyone else but me, uh, I'm fine with that. Um, because it saved my life. And um, you know, it's sort of like what Austin Osmond Spare would often talk about in his writings, however hard it would be to understand his writing. Is that each person really does have to create their own beliefs. They really do have to create their own religion, their own mythos, their own mythology. Um and, and, and to become that individual and that own person who is in that awakened state. But that it doesn't necessarily mean like that person's awakened state would be the same for another person. Um and uh I I I really gravitate towards thinkers, artists, and people who who tend to be more that way. And in, in, in that sense, I've also really felt like in the realm of art, whether it be writing, whether it be music, whether it be painting, whether it be films, sculpture, whatever, that in, in many ways, art transcends philosophy and it transcends spirituality. It transcends religion because in a lot of ways, art is able to, express and communicate things that are logical rational way of thinking about things is just not able to um fully express um because it it enters into a realm where things can be con- contradictory it can be ambiguous and it can still be very extremely profound um and uh you know and that's why to me probably who i would say the greatest master who ever lived was um with Shakespeare or whoever wrote Shakespeare's works um, because there is that that lack of dogmatism that you might find in say the Christ Christ's teachings or Buddha's teachings or, or in Gandhi or Mother Teresa or whoever however great they may be in certain people's eyes um, there's a certain dogmatism that's there and I feel like that somehow makes it less profound and that's just where I'm coming from Being a a
4: creative artistic person, I I think I have that prejudice towards being more favorite towards uh um creative thinkers.
3: Oh,
2: yeah, I'm so with you. This is why it's you know, this is why we've developed such a a great interaction recently before the show. You know, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. One of the things I try to do is just make sure I keep keep the uh language in terms that a lot of people say someone who never dealt with any of these things stumbles in upon and so i like to keep it open you know christ consciousness a lot of people understand that and so
4: Sure, sure yeah
2: the your concept here on shakespeare is is effing brilliant i love it and i think part and and part of the mystery there is we don't know who wrote wrote all that. There of course there are people that have conviction in it, but even right, right, right. Th- this just makes it more beautiful and more valid and more sacred in the end is that it doesn't need there doesn't need to be a persona behind it. It's it's more sacred this way that it kind of comes out almost like this grand gift from the void from the ether
4: sure sure
2: and uh and, and you know sadly i i wonder now too moving into modern times how much patient you know shakespeare's not easy to read and so and it's not, and shakespeare's not even easy to to uh if you're not into if you you don't have patience and It just seems Shakespeare's really hard for modern culture. Everything's flash. Everything is really at an eighth grade level, uh, including the way some of our leaders speak now publicly, very, very eighth grade level. Uh, And so it's kept very simple. And it's not that everyone is... That simple, but for some reason there does seem to be a tide of of it, and so I wonder. Uh uh-huh. I wonder where where Shakespeare ends up, and a and a lot of the greats end up in in that. They you know Shakespeare's going to end up in in the mystery schools. <laughs> where, where, well, Shakespeare belongs well, there anyway, but well, you know yeah. what I'm saying. Even in, sure. even Herman Hash and. Uh-huh. uh, and, and all these, all these others that are just a little bit more removed from modern well, flash culture.
4: Sure.
0: I, I, I have two things about that. And you bring up a really great point. It's a very important point. Well, one is I was in England in July. Uh, I love it there, by the way. I really just really feel at home in England. And, uh, and one of the things that i had to do was go to the globe theater and see two productions of uh, shakespeare's plays and so i went with my son and my my aunt and her two sons and her husband in the evening to see midsummer night's dream and that was great but before that i was on the floor you know in shakespeare's time so the globe theater now in london is designed it was built exactly how it was back in shakespeare's time and um they have the you know two levels up above for seating the upper you know middle upper class people and then down on on the floor is a a big space for what's called for the groundlings for the poor people and um in the afternoon show i saw henry the fourth part one and uh i I, to be honest there there was that experience and one other experience that i had when i was 14 and i was in spain and i was in the um this cathedral that was built into this mountain and outside outside of madrid and it was part of a thing that was built after the civil war in spain and it was below in the in the valley there was a cemetery for all the dead
4: who had died during the civil war when i entered that church that cathedral i was so overwhelmed uh i i,
0: I, I could feel it just surging through my body just how powerful the experience was and the second time that I and I had experienced that to different degrees since then, even before then, but then this most recent experience of being there on the the, the floor on the groundlings with the audience, seeing the actors play out this play, um, it was just so riveting. It was just so I, I I was just gushing in tears like I was when I was fourteen in Spain. It was just so overwhelming. I was I was trembling and And I could look around and I saw people completely enthralled in this play that was so immediate and so um uh, intense and funny and just just filled with so many different dynamics about the human experience and so I, I would say just in response to that like that, to me, you know the plays were written, were were written to both be enjoyed by by reading and also to be enjoyed by experiencing in the theater as a lived experience, as you know, you're seeing human beings on the stage act these stories out, these characters. And so that, to me, has uh, traversed centuries, you know, it's, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by since those plays were written. And even to this day, in 2019, people are still enthralled and, and, and riveted uh, to that, that lived experience. So I feel like that in the sense that people may be reading less nowadays, uh, the plays certainly can still uh, still attract large numbers of people. I mean, Shakespeare is extremely popular today. You know, it doesn't seem, you know, we went to Stratford and there were just hundreds and hundreds of people, this whole town devoted to this one writer, you know? And um, it just sort of seems like to me that the, it has not died down. And the uh, second thing I was going to mention is that it, it it may be that we are entering a period where sort of a, a neglect of literature, a neglect of deep thinking. It certainly seems like it. Uh, we have a lot of information, but it certainly seems like we are in a really bad way neglecting deep reflective thought and nuance. And uh, where everything is either whether, wherever whatever point of view you're, you're ex- people are expressing it's is very superficial and people's concerns are very trivial. And, and and people are reading great works of literature a lot less, um, for sure. And um, I would say this, though, like, you know, as Europeans went through a, a dark age, you know, um, after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, it doesn't mean that just because that neglect of deep thought, deep writing, you know, of importance, um, that all that came before from, you know, writers like Plato or... Um, others that came before, playwrights like Seneca or poets like Ovid or whatnot. You know, there's, there's countless other from the classic period from different cultures. Even though the, the the main culture for centuries lost touch with that, you know, during the Dark Ages, it was never forgotten. Like all of those things were were sustained. They're, they're, they were, they were they were kept through, um, and they did survive. And then they they, they blossomed. In, in Europe, anyway, in, in the Renaissance. So, you know, I my feeling is that uh, Shakespeare or whoever it may be, Dostoevsky, whatever, while there may be people who are, are reading these works less and less these days, and, and we may get worse as time goes on, and let's see how long humanity will last. But if we do last, if we do survive for a few centuries more, um, I, I have a feeling that the tide will turn. There will be a period in time when people are more interested in um, in the deeper pleasures of life. And uh, so, you know, but of course, only time will tell.
2: Indeed. Indeed. That's one of the, the beautiful things about what I consider the great illusion, time. It does seem to uh, parse these things out in a way that we can... We can see almost like a cut up piece of art, and so on this note since we've we've really gone a long time, I could just continue
3: <laughs>
2: talking with you. such a pleasure to talk to you give us uh you know f- wrap us up with how how people can find you, what you're working on, and uh you know give it this is that plug segment, Derek, so <laughs> bring that on.
0: Sure, sure. You know, um, so I've been, you know, I, I just wrote and published a book. My newest book is, uh, my second work in nonfiction is love chaos and theory and practice. And so people can find that, you know, I've got my website. It's, uh, love dash chaos.com and, uh, L O V E dash dot S.com. Um, I have a online presence. Uh, it's not humongous, but it does exist. And, uh, I seem to get the most interaction with people on uh, the Facebook group that I created called Love Chaos. And uh, I do posts on there about various different things, including my own work. And uh, people can find that on Facebook. It's just called Love Chaos. And if people are interested, they uh, do what is called Love Chaos Dialogues. So it uh, is very, you know, casual conversations that start starts with a question. And then we go from there. And I've been doing that with various people, both online and phone, and here in person in LA. Uh, I enjoy doing those very much. And I don't I don't like to receive money. I don't like to charge people for those. I just do them on my own time when I have the time. Um, so people can do that. And uh and in terms of um what I'm working on now is I'm going back to my uh works of fiction. I wrote a a first part of a trilogy called The Story of Us All Trilogy. The first book uh, that I wrote came out a couple of years ago called Black. And the second book that I'm working on right now, which will come out next year, is called White. And the third part of the trilogy is called Red. And they are, um, you know, different schools of thought about alchemy. You'll hear different things about what color means what. But um, I wanted to kind of just break it down to the colors of black, white, and red, and the stories deal with those alchemical uh, colors in different ways. Just as I sort of overturn classic Christian European literature of uh, uh, the Grail legends to the Divine Comedy to the Faust legend, I switch the viewpoints from those around uh, from being the old. Christian European perspective to being what I term agnostic, Gnostic, Luciferian uh, perspectives of literature, and, uh, and also change the view of the colors. So black meaning used to mean uh, 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 sort of death and uh, degradation and um, it being a, a, a place of, uh, of decay, where in this story it means birth. And the opposite. And the white, in the old ways of looking at alchemical, the color white is innocence, is purity. Uh, in this story, it's going to be about corruption. And then the third and final, and the old way of looking at alchemy, red was perfection. But in this story, it's going to be about evolution, uh, continual growth. So these are just some of the things that I, I work with in, in these works of fiction. And that's what I'm currently working on. Uh, and I have other projects that I'm going to be working on after that as well. But uh, yeah, if people want to look into all that I've done and continuing to do, they can check out uh, lovechaos, uh, com Again, it's L O V E dash dot S.com.
1: And I'll have links to all those in the show notes. Thank you.
2: Yeah. The, the red, black, and white stuff sounds fascinating. Of course I right there at the alchemy can't wait to check those out. And also to get my way through the love chaos stuff, and I definitely want to go into dialogue with you about it, but we'll talk about that later. It's yep. been a great pleasure. This has been a, an enriching conversation for me, uh, and I thank you for coming to our little our little corner of
0: little
1: party.
0: Yes. <laughs> I, I- <laughs> i really appreciate you guys i really really uh, i'm very very grateful for you guys having me on the show i i really do appreciate it and i really had a great time and like you nish i i i love conversations and i could keep going with you you guys both of you guys for hours on end mm-hmm. and uh, would just really enjoy it but uh there is that thing that we call time that we have to uh that
1: illusory to,
0: that illusory thing right mm-hmm. right but again once Thank you both so much for having me on here. I really do appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Derek.
0: Thanks,